The Sanctified Life by Ellen G. White. Chapter 1, True and False Theories Contrasted. The sanctification set forth in the sacred scriptures has to do with the entire being, spirit, soul, and body. Here is the true idea of entire consecration. Paul prays that the church at Thessalonica may enjoy this great blessing. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. There is in the religious world a theory of sanctification which is false in itself and dangerous in its influence. In many cases, those who profess sanctification do not possess the genuine article. Their sanctification consists in talk and will worship. Those who are really seeking to perfect Christian character will never indulge the thought that they are sinless. Their lives may be irreproachable. They may be living representatives of the truth which they have accepted. But the more they discipline their minds to dwell upon the character of Christ and the nearer they approach to his divine image, the more clearly will they discern its spotless perfection and the more deeply will they feel their own defects. When persons claim that they are sanctified, they give sufficient evidence that they are far from being holy. They fail to see their own weakness and destitution. They look upon themselves as reflecting the image of Christ because they have no true knowledge of him. The greater the distance between them and their Savior, the more righteous they appear in their own eyes. While with penitence and humble trust we meditate upon Jesus, whom our sins have pierced and our sorrows have burdened, we may learn to walk in his footsteps. By beholding him, we become changed into his divine likeness. And when this work is wrought in us, we shall claim no righteousness of our own, but shall exalt Jesus Christ while we hang our helpless souls upon his merits. Self-righteousness condemned. Our Savior ever condemned self-righteousness. He taught his disciples that the highest type of religion is that which manifests itself in a quiet, unobtrusive manner. He cautioned them to perform their deeds of charity quietly, not for display, not to be praised or honored of men, but for the glory of God, expecting their reward hereafter. If they should perform good deeds to be lauded by men, no reward would be given them by their Father in heaven. The followers of Christ were instructed not to pray for the purpose of being heard of men, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Such expressions as this from the lips of Christ show that he did not regard with approval that kind of piety so prevalent among the Pharisees. His teachings upon the mount show that deeds of benevolence assume a noble form and acts of religious worship shed a most precious fragrance when performed in an unpretending manner in penitence and humility. The pure motive sanctifies the act. True sanctification is an entire conformity to the will of God. Rebellious thoughts and feelings are overcome, and the voice of Jesus, 
awakens a new life which pervades the entire being. Those who are truly sanctified will not set up their own opinion as a standard of right and wrong. They are not bigoted or self-righteous, but they are jealous of self, ever fearing lest a promise being left them, they should come short of complying with the conditions upon which the promises are based. Substituting feeling for reason. Many who profess sanctification are entirely ignorant of the work of grace upon the heart. When proved and tested, they are found to be like the self-righteous Pharisee. They will bear no contradiction. They lay aside reason and judgment and depend wholly upon their feelings, basing their claims to sanctification upon emotions which they have at some time experienced. They are stubborn and perverse in urging their tenacious claims of holiness, giving many words but bearing no precious fruit as proof. These professedly sanctified persons are not only deluding their own souls by their pretensions, but are exerting an influence to lead astray many who earnestly desire to conform to the will of God. They may be heard to reiterate again and again, God leads me, God teaches me, I am living without sin. Many who come in contact with this spirit encounter a dark, mysterious something which they cannot comprehend. But it is that which is altogether unlike Christ, the only true pattern. Bible sanctification does not consist in strong emotion. Here is where many are led into error. They make feelings their criterion. When they feel elated or happy, they claim that they are sanctified. Happy feelings or the absence of joy is no evidence that a person is or is not sanctified. There is no such thing as instantaneous sanctification. True sanctification is a daily work continuing as long as life shall last. Those who are battling with daily temptations, overcoming their own sinful tendencies and seeking for holiness of heart and life, make no boastful claims of holiness. They are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Sin appears to them exceedingly sinful. There are those claiming sanctification who make a profession of the truth like their brethren, and it may be difficult to make a distinction between them, but the difference exists nevertheless. The testimony of those claiming such an exalted experience will cause the sweet spirit of Christ to withdraw from a meeting and will leave a chilling influence upon those present, while if they were truly living without sin, their very presence would bring holy angels into the assembly, and their words would indeed be like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The testing time. In summer, as we look upon the trees of the distant forest, all clothed with a beautiful mantle of green, we may not be able to distinguish between the evergreens and the other trees. But as winter approaches and the frost king encloses them in his icy embrace, stripping the other trees of their beautiful foliage, the evergreens are readily discerned. Thus it will be with all who are walking in humility, distrustful of self, but clinging tremblingly to the hand of Christ, while those who are self-confident and trust in their own perfection of character lose their false robe of righteousness when subjected to the storms of trial, the truly righteous who sincerely love and fear God wear the robe of Christ's righteousness in prosperity and adversity alike. 
self-denial, self-sacrifice, benevolence, kindness, love, patience, fortitude, and Christian trust are the daily fruits borne by those who are truly connected with God. Their acts may not be published to the world, but they themselves are daily wrestling with evil and gaining precious victories over temptation and wrong. Solemn vows are renewed and kept through the strength gained by earnest prayer and constant watching thereunto. The ardent enthusiast does not discern the struggles of these silent workers, but the eye of him who seeth the secrets of the heart notices and regards with approval every effort put forth in lowliness and meekness. It requires the testing time to reveal the pure gold of love and faith in the character. When trials and perplexities come upon the church, then the steadfast zeal and warm affections of Christ's true followers are developed. We feel sad to see professed Christians led astray by the false and bewitching theory that they are perfect because it is so difficult to undeceive them and lead them into the right path. They have sought to make the exterior fair and pleasing while the inward adorning, the meekness and lowliness of Christ is wanting. The testing time will come to all when the hopes of many who have for years thought themselves secure will be seen to be without foundation. When in new positions, under varied circumstances, some who have seemed to be pillars in the house of God reveal only rotten timber beneath the paint and varnish. But the humble in heart who have daily felt the importance of riveting their souls to the eternal rock will stand unmoved amid the tempests of trial because they trusted not to themselves. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Normal fruit-bearing. Those who take pains to call attention to their good works, constantly talking of their sinless state and endeavoring to make their religious attainments prominent are only deceiving their own souls by so doing. A healthy man who is able to attend to the vocations of life and who goes forth day after day to his labor with buoyant spirits and with a healthy current of blood flowing through his veins does not call the attention of everyone he meets to his soundness of body. Health and vigor are the natural conditions of his life, and therefore he is scarcely conscious that he is in the enjoyment of so rich a boon. Thus it is with the truly righteous man. He is unconscious of his goodness and piety. Religious principle has become the spring of his life and conduct, and it is just as natural for him to bear the fruits of the Spirit as for the fig tree to bear figs or for the rose bush to yield roses. His nature is so thoroughly imbued with love for God and his fellow men that he works the works of Christ with a willing heart. All who come within the sphere of his influence perceive the beauty and fragrance of his Christian life while he himself is unconscious of it for it is in harmony with his habits and inclinations. He prays for divine light and loves to walk in that light. It is his meat and drink to do the will of his heavenly Father. His life is hid with Christ in God, yet he does not boast of this nor seem conscious of it. God smiles upon the humble and lowly ones who follow closely in the footsteps of the Master. Angels are attracted to them and love to linger about their path. They may be passed by as unworthy of notice by those who claim exalted attainments 
and who delight in making prominent their good works. But heavenly angels bend lovingly over them and are as a wall of fire round about them. Why Christ was rejected. Our Savior was the light of the world, but the world knew him not. He was constantly employed in works of mercy, shedding light upon the pathway of all, yet he did not call upon those with whom he mingled to behold his unexampled virtue, his self-denial, self-sacrifice, and benevolence. The Jews did not admire such a life. They considered his religion worthless because it did not accord with their standard of piety. They decided that Christ was not religious in spirit or character, for their religion consisted in display, in praying publicly, and in doing works of charity for effect. They trumpeted their good deeds as do those who claim sanctification. They would have all understand that they are without sin, but the whole life of Christ was in direct contrast to this. He sought neither gain nor honor. His wonderful acts of healing were performed in as quiet a manner as possible, although he could not restrain the enthusiasm of those who were the recipients of his great blessings. Humility and meekness characterized his life, and it was because of his lowly walk and unassuming manners, which were in such marked contrast to their own that the Pharisees would not accept him. Meekness, a fruit of the Spirit. The most precious fruit of sanctification is a grace of meekness. When this grace presides in the soul, the disposition is molded by its influence. There is continual waiting upon God and a submission to the will of His. The understanding grasps every divine truth and the will bows to every divine precept without doubting or murmuring. True meekness softens and subdues the heart and gives the mind a fitness for the engrafted word. It brings the thoughts into obedience to Jesus Christ. It opens the heart to the word of God as Lydia's was opened. It places us with Mary as learners at the feet of Jesus. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. The language of the meek is never that of boasting. Like the child Samuel, they pray, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. When Joshua was placed in the highest position of honor as commander of Israel, he bade defiance to all the enemies of God. His heart was filled with noble thoughts of his great mission. Yet upon the intimation of a message from heaven, he placed himself in the position of a little child to be directed. What saith my Lord unto his servant? Was his response. The first words of Paul after Christ was revealed to him were, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Meekness in the school of Christ is one of the marked fruits of the Spirit. It is a grace wrought by the Holy Spirit as a sanctifier and enables its possessor at all times to control a rash and impetuous temper. When the grace of meekness is cherished by those who are naturally sour or hasty in disposition, they will put forth the most earnest efforts to subdue their unhappy temper. Every day they will gain self-control until that which is unlovely and unlike Jesus is conquered. They become assimilated to the divine pattern until they can obey the inspired injunction, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
when a man professes to be sanctified and yet in words and works may be represented by the impure fountain sending forth its bitter waters, we may safely say that man is deceived. He needs to learn the very alphabet of what constitutes the life of a Christian. Some who profess to be servants of Christ have so long cherished the demon of unkindness that they seem to love the unhallowed element and to take pleasure in speaking words that displease and irritate. These men must be converted before Christ will acknowledge them as his children. Meekness is the inward adorning which God estimates of great price. The apostle speaks of this as more excellent and valuable than gold or pearl or costly array, while the outward adorning beautifies only the mortal body, the ornament of meekness adorns the soul and connects finite man with the infinite God. This is the ornament of God's own choice. He who garnished the heavens and the orbs of light has by the same Spirit promised that he will beautify the meek with salvation. Angels of heaven will register as best adorned those who put on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk with him in meekness and lowliness of mind attaining to sonship. There are high attainments for the Christian. He may ever be rising to higher attainments. John had an elevated idea of the privilege of a Christian. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. It is not possible for humanity to rise to a higher dignity than is here implied. To man is granted the privilege of becoming an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. To those who have been thus exalted are unfolded the unsearchable riches of Christ, which are of a thousandfold more value than the wealth of the world. Thus, through the merits of Jesus Christ, finite man is elevated to fellowship with God and with his dear Son. Chapter 2 Daniel's Temperance Principles The prophet Daniel was an illustrious character. He was a bright example of what men may become when united with a God of wisdom. A brief account of the life of this holy man of God is left on record for the encouragement of those who should afterward be called to endure trial and temptation. When the people of Israel, their king, nobles, and priests were carried into captivity, Four of their number were selected to serve in the court of the king of Babylon. One of these was Daniel, who early gave promise of the remarkable ability developed in later years. These youth were all of princely birth and are described as children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them. Perceiving the superior talents of these youthful captives, King Nebuchadnezzar determined to prepare them to fill important positions in his kingdom, that they might be fully qualified for their life at court according to Oriental custom. They were to be taught the language of the Chaldeans and to be subjected for three years to a thorough course of physical and intellectual discipline. The youth in this school of training were not only to be admitted to the royal palace, but it was provided that they should eat of the meat and drink of the wine which came from the king's table. In all this the king considered that he was not only bestowing great honor upon them, but securing for them the best physical and mental development that could be attained. 
meeting the test. Among the viands placed before the king were swine's flesh and other meats which were declared unclean by the law of Moses and which the Hebrews had been expressly forbidden to eat. Here Daniel was brought to a severe test. Should he adhere to the teachings of his fathers concerning meats and drinks and offend the king and probably lose not only his position but his life? Or should he disregard the commandment of the Lord and retain the favor of the king, thus securing great intellectual advantages and the most flattering worldly prospects? Daniel did not long hesitate. He decided to stand firm in his integrity, let the result be what it might. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Not narrow or bigoted, there are many among professed Christians today who would decide that Daniel was too particular and would pronounce him narrow and bigoted. They consider the matter of eating and drinking is of too little consequence to require such a decided stand, one involving the probable sacrifice of every earthly advantage. But those who reason thus will find in the day of judgment that they turn from God's express requirements and set up their own opinion as a standard of right and wrong. They will find that what seemed to them unimportant was not so regarded of God. His requirements should be sacredly obeyed. Those who accept and obey one of his precepts because it is convenient to do so, while they reject another because its observance would require a sacrifice, lower the standard of right, and by their example lead others to lightly regard the holy law of God. Thus saith the Lord is to be our rule in all things. A faultless character. Daniel was subjected to the severest temptations that can assail the youth of today, yet he was true to the religious instruction received in early life. He was surrounded with influences calculated to subvert those who would vacillate between principle and inclination, yet the Word of God presents him as a faultless character. Daniel dared not trust to his own moral power. Prayer was to him a necessity. He made God his strength, and the fear of God was continually before him in all the transactions of his life. Daniel possessed the grace of genuine meekness. He was true, firm, and noble. He sought to live in peace with all while he was unbending as a lofty cedar wherever principle was involved. In everything that did not come in collision with his allegiance to God, he was respectful and obedient to those who had authority over him. But he had so high a sense of the claims of God that the requirements of earthly rulers were held subordinate. He would not be induced by any selfish consideration to swerve from his duty. The character of Daniel is presented to the world as a striking example of what God's grace can do of men fallen by nature and corrupted by sin. The record of his noble, self-denying life is an encouragement to our common humanity. From it we may gather strength to nobly resist temptation and firmly and in the grace of meekness stand for the right under the severest trial. God's approval dearer than life. Daniel might have found a plausible excuse to depart from his strictly temperate habits, but the approval of God was dearer to him than the favor of the most powerful earthly potentate, dearer even than life itself. 
having by his courteous conduct obtained favor with Melzar, the officer in charge of the Hebrew youth, Daniel made a request that he might not eat of the king's meat or drink of his wine. Melzar feared that should he comply with this request, he might incur the displeasure of the king and thus endanger his own life. Like many at the present day, he thought that an abstemious diet would render these youth pale and sickly in appearance and deficient in muscular strength, while the luxurious food from the king's table would make him ruddy and beautiful and would promote physical and mental activity. Daniel requested that the matter be decided by a ten days trial. The Hebrew youth during this brief period being permitted to eat of simple food while their companions partook of the king's deities. The request was finally granted, and then Daniel felt assured that he had gained his case. Although but a youth, he had seen the injurious effect of wine and luxurious living upon physical and mental health. God vindicates his servant. At the end of the ten days, the result was found to be quite the opposite of Melzar's expectations. Not only in personal appearance, but in physical activity and mental vigor, those who had been temperate in their habits exhibited a marked superiority over their companions who had indulged appetite. As a result of this trial, Daniel and his associates were permitted to continue their simple diet during the whole course of their training for the duties of the kingdom. The Lord regarded with approval the firmness and self-denial of these Hebrew youth, and his blessing attended them. He gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the expiration of the three years of training, when their ability and acquirements were tested by the king, he found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, therefore stood they before the king. In all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Self-control, a condition of sanctification. The life of Daniel is an inspired illustration of what constitutes a sanctified character. It presents a lesson for all and especially for the young. A strict compliance with the requirements of God is beneficial to the health of body and mind. In order to reach the highest standard of moral and intellectual attainments, it is necessary to seek wisdom and strength from God and to observe strict temperance in all the habits of life. In the experience of Daniel and his companions, we have an instance of the triumph of principle over temptation to indulge the appetite. It shows us that through religious principle, young men may triumph over the lusts of the flesh and remain true to God's requirements, even though it costs them a great sacrifice. What if Daniel and his companions had made a compromise with those heathen officers and had yielded to the pressure of the occasion by eating and drinking as was customary with the Babylonians? That single instance of departure from principle would have weakened their sense of right and their abhorrence of wrong. Indulgence of appetite would have involved the sacrifice of physical vigor, clearness of intellect, and spiritual power. R one wrong step would probably have led to others until their connection with heaven being severed. They would have been swept away by temptation. God has said, Them that honor me I will honor. While Daniel clung to his God with unwavering trust, the spirit of prophetic power came upon him.
While he was instructed of man in the duties of court life, he was taught of God to read the mysteries of future ages and to present to coming generations through figures and similitudes the wonderful things that would come to pass in the last days. Chapter 3, Controlling the Appetites and Passions. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul is the language of the Apostle Peter. Many regard this text as a warning against licentiousness only, but it has a broader meaning. It forbids every injurious gratification of appetite or passion. Let none who profess godliness regard with indifference the health of the body and flatter themselves that intemperance is no sin and will not affect their spirituality. A close sympathy exists between the physical and the moral nature. Any habit which does not promote health degrades the higher and nobler faculties. Wrong habits of eating and drinking lead to errors in thought and action. Indulgence of appetite strengthens the animal propensities, giving them the ascendancy over the mental and spiritual powers. It is impossible for any to enjoy the blessing of sanctification while they are selfish and gluttonous. Many groan under a burden of infirmities because of wrong habits of eating and drinking, which do violence to the laws of life and health. They are enfeebling their digestive organs by indulging perverted appetite. The power of the human constitution to resist the abuses put upon it is wonderful, but persistent wrong habits and excessive eating and drinking will enfeeble every function of the body. In the gratification of perverted appetite and passion, even professed Christians cripple nature in her work and lessen physical, mental, and moral power. Let these feeble ones consider what they might have been had they lived temperately and promoted health instead of abusing it. Not an impossible standard. When Paul wrote, The very God of peace sanctify you holy, he did not exhort his brethren to aim at a standard which it was impossible for them to reach. He did not pray that they might have blessings which it was not the will of God to give. He knew that all who would be fitted to meet Christ in peace must possess a pure and holy character. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, and not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price." Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. An unblemished offering. Again, the apostle writes to the believers, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Specific directions were given to ancient Israel that no defective or diseased animal should be presented as an offering to God. Only the most perfect were to be selected for this purpose. The Lord, through the prophet Malachi, most severely reproved his people for departing from these instructions. 
a son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offered polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? Though addressed to ancient Israel, these words contain a lesson for the people of God today. When the apostle appeals to his brethren to present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, he sets forth the principles of true sanctification. It is not merely a theory, an emotion, or a form of words, but a living, active principle entering into the everyday life. It requires that our habits of eating, drinking, and dressing be such as to secure the preservation of physical, mental, and moral health, that we may present to the Lord our bodies not an offering corrupted by wrong habits, but a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God. Stimulants and Narcotics Peter's admonition to abstain from fleshly lusts is a most direct and forcible warning against the use of all such stimulants and narcotics as tea, coffee, tobacco, alcohol, and morphine. These indulgences may well be classed among the lusts that exert a pernicious influence upon moral character. The earlier these hurtful habits are formed, the more firmly will they hold their victim in slavery to lust and the more certainly will they lower the standard of spirituality. Bible teaching will make but a feeble impression upon those whose faculties are benumbed by self-gratification. Thousands will sacrifice not only health and life, but their hope of heaven before they will wage war against their own perverted appetites. One lady who for many years claimed to be sanctified made the statement that if she must give up her pipe or heaven, she would say, Farewell, heaven, I cannot overcome my love for my pipe. This idol had been enshrined in the soul, leaving to Jesus a subordinate place. Yet this woman claimed to be wholly the Lord's. Lusts that war against the soul. Wherever they may be, those who are truly sanctified will elevate the moral standard by preserving correct physical habits, and like Daniel, presenting to others an example of temperance and self-denial. Every depraved appetite becomes a warring lust. Everything that conflicts with natural law creates a diseased condition of the soul. The indulgence of appetite produces a dyspeptic stomach, a torpid liver, a clouded brain, and thus perverts the temper and spirit of the man. And these enfeebled powers are offered to God who refuse to accept the victims for sacrifice unless they are without a blemish. It is our duty to bring our appetites and our habits of life into conformity to natural law. 
if the bodies offered upon Christ's altar were examined with the close scrutiny to which the Jewish sacrifices were subjected, who would be accepted? With what care should Christians regulate their habits that they may preserve the full vigor of every faculty to give to the service of Christ? If we would be sanctified in soul, body, and spirit, we must live in conformity to the divine law. The heart cannot preserve consecration to God while the appetites and passions are indulged at the expense of health and life. Those who violate the laws upon which health depends must suffer the penalty. They have so limited their abilities in every sense that they cannot properly discharge their duties to their fellow men, and they utterly fail to answer the claims of God. When Lord Palmerston, Premier of England, was petitioned by the Scotch clergy to appoint a day of fasting and prayer to avert the cholera, he replied in effect, Cleanse and disinfect your streets and houses, promote cleanliness and health among the poor, and see that they are plentifully supplied with good food and raiment, and employ right sanitary measures generally, and you will have no occasion to fast and pray. Nor will the Lord hear your prayers while these, his preventatives, remain unheeded. Says Paul, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He presents for our encouragement the freedom enjoyed by the truly sanctified. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He charges the Galatians, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He names some of the forms of fleshly lust, idolatry, drunkenness, and such like. And after mentioning the fruits of the Spirit, among which is temperance, he adds, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Tobacco. James says that the wisdom which is from above is first pure. If he had seen his brethren using tobacco, would he not have denounced the practice as earthly, sensual, devilish, in this age of Christian light, how often the lips that take the precious name of Christ are defiled by tobacco spittle, and the breath is polluted with the stench. Surely the soul that can enjoy such uncleanness must also be defiled. As I have seen men who claim to enjoy the blessing of entire sanctification while they were slaves to tobacco, polluting everything around them, I have thought, how would heaven appear with tobacco users in it? God's word has plainly declared that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. How then can those who indulge this filthy habit hope to find admittance there? Men professing godliness offer their bodies upon Satan's altar and burn the incense of tobacco to his satanic majesty. Does this statement seem severe? Certainly the offering is presented to some deity, as God is pure and holy and will accept nothing defiling in its character. He must refuse this expensive, filthy, and unholy sacrifice. Therefore we conclude that Satan is the one who claims the honor. Jesus died to rescue man from the grasp of Satan. 
He came to set us free by the blood of his atoning sacrifice. The man who has become the property of Jesus Christ and whose body is the temple of the Holy Ghost will not be enslaved by the pernicious habit of tobacco using. His powers belong to Christ who has bought him with the price of blood. His property is the Lord's. How then can he be guilty in expending every day the Lord's entrusted capital to gratify an appetite which has no foundation in nature? An enormous sum is yearly squandered for this indulgence while souls are perishing for the word of life. Professed Christians rob God in tithes and offerings while they offer on the altar of destroying lust in the use of tobacco more than they give to relieve the poor or to supply the wants of God's cause. Those who are truly sanctified will overcome every hurtful lust. Then all these channels of needless expense will be turned to the Lord's treasury, and Christians will take the lead in self-denial, in self-sacrifice, and in temperance. Then they will be the light of the world. Tea and coffee. Tea and coffee, as well as tobacco, have an injurious effect upon the system. Tea is intoxicating. Though less in degree, its effect is the same in character as that of spiritus liquors. Coffee has a greater tendency to becloud the intellect and benumb the energies. It is not so powerful as tobacco, but is similar in its effects. The arguments brought against tobacco may also be urged against the use of tea and coffee. When those who are in the habit of using tea, coffee, tobacco, opium, or spiritus liquors are deprived of the accustomed indulgence, they find it impossible to engage with interest and zeal in the worship of God. Divine grace seems powerless to enliven or spiritualize their prayers or their testimonies. These professed Christians should consider the source of their enjoyment. Is it from above or from beneath? To a user of stimulants, everything seems insipid without the darling indulgence. This deadens the natural susceptibilities of both body and mind and renders him less susceptible to the influence of the Holy Spirit. In the absence of the usual stimulant, he has a hungering of body and soul, not for righteousness, not for holiness, not for God's presence, but for his cherished idol. In the indulgence of hurtful lusts, professed Christians are daily enfeebling their powers, making it impossible to glorify God.